Welcome to Eclectic Intellection. Today's episode focuses on the intersection between an urban landscape and ethnic categories. More specifically, this episode will focus on the city of Sarajevo in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And uh, my guest today is Fran Markowitz, who is a professor emerita in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev. We will discuss her book, which is titled Sarajevo, a Bosnian Kaleidoscope, and uh, which was published in 2010 by the University of Illinois Press. Here's how this book is described on page three. Quote, This book is about Sarajevo, its buildings, monuments, museums, and streets, its war scars, its histories, and its cultural legacies as narrated, categorized, and practiced by its people. The book examines how Sarajevans navigate, negotiate, reproduce, and amend who it is that they think they are from within the authoritative discourses of history, in their interactions with the government, through their encounters with the built environment, and in comparison with other peoples and persons with whom they share neighborhood, city, country, and continent." End quote. In another passage on uh, page 13, uh, Friend Markowitz writes the following, quote, It is the constant shift between mirth and melancholy, heterogeneity and hybridity that keeps drawing me back to Sarajevo. End quote. More broadly, then, this will be a discussion about how a certain kind of urban experience, as well as the trauma of war, shaped and continues to shape a sense of belonging in Sarajevo. So, uh, Fran Markowitz, welcome to the podcast. Could we begin with a more extensive genealogy of this project, um, as well as a few more words about your academic background? First of all, Xavi, thank you for having me. It was a huge surprise to get your inquiry out of the blue about a book that, here we are in July 2020, came out 10 years ago. And it kind of shocked me that, oh my goodness, that book came out 10 years ago. And here's somebody who wants to talk about it today in 2020. So I'm really flattered and I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to be here with you today. I could kind of quote the feminist motto that the personal is the political and the political is the personal. Um, by talking about my academic background and what brought me to uh, write a book about Sarajevo, I think the most important, the most important two things um, that drew me to that are that I grew up in New York City during the 1950s and 60s, and I grew up in an environment that just piqued my imagination of alternate ways of worshiping, of being, of eating, of drinking, of thinking about the here and now and the past and the future. So bringing that back more down to earth, I grew up in a place called Stuyvesant Town, which is in lower Manhattan, um, just above, I guess, what would have been called the, uh, the East Village, which is just above the Lower East Side. It was an apartment complex, which we then called the projects, not the projects built by the federal government for low income, but for um, low middle, middle, middle income families. And I guess I grew up as one of um, about maybe 25% or a third of the people there were Jewish. The other two thirds, it seemed to me, were Irish or Italian Catholic. And then there was another 5%, which comes out to more than 100, which were uh, the Protestants who went to St. Saint, Saint 
mm, George's Episcopal Church. And then, like, right across the street, don't cross Fifth Avenue, were mainly Spanish speakers, Puerto Ricans, uh, some African Americans, but not many. But my 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 daily interactions with the city. Again, there's eight million New Yorkers. Not everybody says, "Well, I'm a New Yorker. I'm going to be an anthropologist." But um, when I went to high school several years later, we had moved to Brooklyn, but I still commuted to high school in Manhattan. Margaret Mead came to speak to my class. Right. Class of 1969, and this self-confident, determined woman came out on the stage, and she looked out at us. This was a school of all girls, and said to us before going into her talk, the first thing that I want to get across to you is that it's really important that you all look at yourselves and have careers, vocations, passions, as well as anything else. And I kind of wanted to be an actress at that time. My dad was very um, disdainful of that idea. And she started talking about what she had done, you know, doing anthropology at home in America. I can't, I kind of, before that song was even made popular in um, a chorus line, I had this refrain going through my head going, well, I can do that. Well, I can do that. Well, I can do that. And then I went to college at SUNY Binghamton, which was Harper College, which was the liberal arts part of the State University of New York in Binghamton, now called Binghamton University. And I kind of wanted to do philosophy, but my philosophy course was closed my first year. And then my second year, I had taken intro to anthro um, during my first semester, and I really loved it. And I thought, hey, this is a great way to pull myself out of the corner of the library of studying history and philosophy, which I like both of them, and kind of kind of looked at, and anybody who's an anthropologist out there, if you disagree with me, fine, I'll be happy to talk about it. But I kind of looked at anthropology as like practical philosophy. And, um, and I thought doing field work was pretty scary. But I could do it. I could do that because Margaret Mead did it and mm. Ruth Benedict did it. And there were these female role models who did it. So I went through SUNY Binghamton majoring. I guess we had to do a major in a field and then a discipline. So I majored in social sciences and then I subfielded in anthropology and sociology. And at the time, my two area studies were the Middle East, and I took some Semitic studies and some anthro of the Middle East, and also, because I said, if I'm going to be an anthropologist, I better know about this, Oceania and, um, 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 you know, Melanesia, Micronesia, Polynesia, having no idea whatsoever that I would ultimately be working um, in um, Eastern or Central Europe. Mm -hmm. So that was my undergraduates. Fast forward to doing um, an urban studies degree at Georgia State University as kind of an interim thing, and then going on to University of Michigan in 1980. I finished in 87, but here's where the person on the political get intertwined a little bit more. I came to U of M determined that I was going to do this path-breaking study of urban-to-urban -urban migration because everything that I had read in the 70s in the anthropology of migration, almost everything, had to do with tribesmen to townsmen, peasants to urbanites. And here came this these two amazing migrations at the end of the 70s to the USA, those people who were expelled or impelled out of Vietnam, and then Soviet Jewish immigrants. Okay, now I'm Jewish, and uh, but I, I and my background is not Russian. My family is from Lithuania and a little bit from Poland. So it wasn't like a roots thing. Here's this social experiment built in of an urban to urban migration where um, the cultures are very different, particularly the political cultures, the linguistic culture, um, uh, uh, the social culture, 
and yet the scale is maintained, right? Moscow to New York or St. Petersburg to Philadelphia or Kiev to uh, Detroit, the, the scale is built in. And then coupled with that, the whole question of anthropology, what is an ethnos? What is a group? What is a nation? What is, an, what is a, a religious group? Are, are so differently judicially um, defined in the former Soviet Union and in the USA that once again I said, wow, you know, this Jewish ethnicity issue is here for the taking. So I started my work with that. I took Russian 101, knowing three words and then going on to five words and then 70 words. And then people said, hey, you have a good flair for this. And I started meeting people and doing my work and getting my Russian together and getting my coursework together and getting confounded by all the theories that one contradicted the other. But Russian was my ballast, and it helped me um, steady myself as I was going through coursework. And then in grad school, I met someone who was of my age and of my stature, and we got married. And his research project from political science was a research project on um, returning guest workers to Yugoslavia, which, of course, was the only socialist country that allowed its citizens to cross its borders and go work in the West and make some money and come back home and supposedly invest in small businesses. But hey, that's his thing, not mine. And so we went, and, and, and I lived a year with him in Zagreb, which is now the capital of Croatia. And I also thought, wow, what a great opportunity for me to live a year in a socialist country. Yes, Yugoslavia is a pink country, and the Soviet Union is a red country. But I would get some inkling of, of a different life way. And then I also thought, you know, I can study Russian and write my grant proposals for my research as easily in Zagreb as in Ann Arbor or New York or New Zealand. So we went, and among all the other things that I did in my daily life, such as taking a Hrvatsko-Serbsky course, a Croatian-Serbian course, because at the time there was one language that was the national language of Yugoslavia called Serbo-Croatian, but in Croatia, the book that we used was called Croato-Serbian, so I took that class, of course, and I sat with stories of Chekhov and, 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 and Tolstoy and read Russian, and I wrote my grant proposals, but then we went on um, several adventures, several voyages throughout Yugoslavia, and tw twice we went to Bosnia. Mm -hmm. And each time we went, I was enthralled. Now, maybe part of it was the American Western girl kind of seeing this compendium of Turkish and Austrian architecture together. And maybe some of that was that enticing aromas of uh, Chivapchichi, these various grilled meat restaurants, and maybe some of it were the multicolored carpets swaying in the breeze from the stalls, and maybe some of it were the uh, hand-chiseled copper and brass coffee sets and coffee tables, and maybe some of it were this filigrane, the filigree jewelry, which I just thought was the most delicate and beautiful I'd ever seen. And maybe some of it was this amazing spirit of hospitality and welcome that was enhanced by the fact that Sarajevo, uh, and this was now 1983, that Sarajevo in 1984 was so excited, all of Yugoslavia, but particularly Bosnia and, and, and Sarajevo were so excited about hosting the 1984 Winter Olympic Games the only time that a Winter Olympic Games had been hosted by a socialist country, and just after the not-so-successful um, hosting of the 1980 Summer Olympic Games in Moscow. But there was just such enthusiasm, and uh, maybe looking back, I'm exaggerating it, but I felt it in my heart so much so that, fast forward again, when wars began, and I'm using the passive voice, on purpose when wars began in, in Bosnia, particularly in Sarajevo. I can't even say I was horrified. I was just stunned. Like, how did that happen? How did that happen? Can I do something? And I have a passion and I have some knowledge and I have these 
fabulous reminiscences. How can I do nothing? So I started thinking about what kind of some things I could do. And at that time, my academic life brought me to Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Beersheba, Israel, and I had started my job there in 1992. As I think I wrote in some piece that I wrote after having written this book, but I, I, I did a kind of comparison of um, urban architecture in Sarajevo with urban architecture in Israel, and I started off by saying 1992 was a great year to come to Israel. Again, enthusiasm, I mean, at least among the people that I um, associated with, enthusiasm about the secret negotiations taking place between Israelis and the PLO and, and then coming up with the Oslo Accords. And that was a bunch of years that was very hopeful for a, a, a great chunk of Israelis, Jewish and Muslim and Christian populations. And at the, during the same years, uh, Sarajevo had descended into a hellhole. What's going on here? So, following in the footsteps of Menachem Begin, who in the late 1970s had opened up a tiny little space for people from Vietnam to resettle in Israel, the minister of the environment, I think, not the Yossi Sarid, I think, made a proposal to the Knesset that, in addition to you know whatever Jewish people or a partially Jewish people were coming out of Sarajevo um, and, and, and settling in Israel according to the law of return, that we would also, the country would also open up space for 100 refugees and opened it up to people who were living in or around the Pula refugee camp at the tip of the Istrian peninsula in Croatia. So something like 85 people took up the, this offer, 85 or 86, and after um, some initial craziness of, try, of, of wanting to resettle them in a Galilee um, Arab village, because we knew that the officials in Israel knew that the majority were Bosnian Muslims, but they were Bosnian Muslims who were urbanites, then they moved them to uh, a kibbutz. First, one kibbutz and then the other kibbutz. Um, uh, the, the kibbutz that I, I ran up to when I found out that they were there, and I just like got off the bus, walked, stumbled my way. I didn't know what I would find. And I go, Zdravo, kakos Hello, how are you? Right, my, my basic um, Serbo Croatian Bosnian. And people just started talking to me and just started talking to me, and we commiserated on the, the misery and the craziness and the shock of what had happened in in, Sarajevo, in Sarajevo, in Bosnia, and all of ex-Yugoslavia. And so I wrote this little piece, and I resolved that. And, oh, and people kept saying, I don't understand how this happened. My best friend was served. My, um, my godparent of my son was Croat. And, you know, people just kind of said, we live this multi-ethnic life. Okay. Were there bad guys coming in from um, without? and telling these compelling stories and giving economic incentives. I don't know what was going on. And so I resolved that if I could, when the war ended, and I didn't say if, but when, because you know, I knew it ultimately had to, I would try to do some project. Mm -hmm. So I called up um, a friend of mine who had also been, been at University of Michigan, an anthropologist by the name of Olga Supak, who was Yugoslav, now Croatian, uh, anthropologist. And we met up in Zagreb. And I got a little money from IREX to go do a pilot study, to go to, you know, because one of the things that I knew from my earlier research with Soviet Jewish immigrants, you can't just walk in and say, hello, I am your self-appointed anthropologist. You know, you have to kind of figure out, is there some rapport? Do people want to talk? Do people want to talk about this particular topic? Will I feel comfortable? I'm not such a, I mean, now I'm a whole lot older, but at that point, I was not, you know, in my 20s, 30s. I was maybe in my 40s. Uh, uh, starting kind of over, 
with, you know, kind of rudimentary language where, uh, like, when I would forget phrases in Serbo-Croatian and Bosnian, I would throw them in in Russian. And um, so Olga and I, so I met up with her in Zagreb, and we spent a few days together. And then we went, we flew into Bosnia, we flew into this crater that was um, the remains of the airport, and came out into, and this was now August 1997, the, uh, the Dayton Accords, first the Paris and then the Dayton Accords, were signed at the beginning of December of 95, so like a year and a half had passed. And, you know, it was a beautiful, bright day, and there were umbrellas mushrooming under the sun where people were sipping soft drinks and beer, and maybe, you know, Bosnian coffee. And the buildings had blown out windows and roofs missing, and there were holes in the sidewalk and holes where Robna Kucha, which was the, the clothing store, and just kind of walked around and met people from the Zemalski Musee, the, the National Museum, and people from the Filosofsky Fakultas, and one man sat with me, an older guy, and we, we switched between Russian and Serbo-Croatian and a little English. And Olga left me after a day or a day and a half to go down to the coast. And I stayed, trying to feel the feel of what the city felt like after the exuberance of 1983. Mm. And people were, like, stunned that I had been in 1983, and they really wanted to talk about what the days were like then. And my idea was to maybe, you know, go to a couple of villages or have some graduate students do the bulk of the ethnography, do the bulk of the fieldwork. And my idea was to ask, you know, whether or not um, networks of friendship and kinship that were multi-ethnic had survived the war, had um, maintained themselves during the war or not. And everyone I spoke with said, nice idea, don't do it, not feasible. First of all, those villages have all been ethnically cleansed. The euphemism for the minority group has been kicked out uh, one way or the other. So people were kind of, I don't want to go so far as to say happy, but gratified and interested that I and whatever I stood for was here with a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of language um, to investigate. And so I went back home to my little house in the Negev, and I thought and thought about what I wanted to do. And I came back with this idea of, and I think I call it ethnic entanglements, um, heterogeneity and hybridity in post-war Sarajevo. Um, I wanted to talk about your the main argument in the book. And again, the title is Sarajevo, a Bosnian kaleidoscope, and you unpack this idea of the kaleidoscope. Could you say a few words about the overarching argument in the book? And maybe if you have an example or two that could sort of illustrate it, that would be great as well. So I wrote the book to interrogate the power of state, or in this case, the EU-delineated and supervised post-Dayton, not exactly state, Republic of Bosnia-Herzegovina. I wrote the book to interrogate the power of, let's say, government, as manifested through the solidification and silencing of population categories that are trying to recreate or at least establish a seemingly right, normal, natural, restored peace and prosperity in Bosnia. There was such a prevalent discourse right after the war about hewing apart the constituent nations of Bosnia so that their peoples can live out what is being rhetorically stated as their natural national histories. It was very complicated. At many points when I was writing the book, I despaired. And I said, how do I tell the story that I kind of want to show how these interrelated stories, histories, truths, anti-truths, 
of heterogeneity and hybridity came together throughout the history of Sarajevo, and particularly through the Yugoslav uh, period, and then seemingly blew apart. And then how both on the ground in Bosnia and through the eyes of the international community, the only solution to making sure that there would no longer be violence, warfare, and bloodshed between and among and within these parts was to partition and subdivide this population. Mm -hmm. So my overarching argument is not is less an argument than a question, or maybe, uh, like I wrote here, how did the Yugoslav project die? And especially in Bosnia-Herzegovina, the most Yugoslav republic of Yugoslavia. Did the war express an inherent anti-Yugoslav, anti-Bosnian canopy of hybridity? Or does this, the count, that counterstream continue to exist years and decades after the war? The, the book's major argument is both. In other words, that there are these competing and contrasting, but also overlapping examples of how to be in the world. And we can find, and I set out to find examples of both materially in the architecture of the cityscape and symbolically, ideationally, linguistically, in spontaneous narratives and how people mark themselves and others as ethnic actors. So my overall argument is that there are competing, sometimes, sometimes complementary ways of being in the world, despite international uh, governmental divisions and decrees to the contrary, people continue to hold both to ways of seeing themselves as others, as exclusive groups, and as interrelated peoples in an overlapping uh, sphere of ethnicity. And I guess I also wanted to say, too, that ethnic cleansing doesn't work. You know, if I, if, I, I mean, I want to make an argument that is both uh, ethnographically compelling, a tiny bit moralistic, but also like objectively true. These, these overlapping ways of, of not only seeing the world, but also being in the world and having the world built before you inspire these different imaginaries and practices that both compete and uh, complement each other and that rubbing them out, even in violent acts and even through government decrees, doesn't solve the problem. Your metaphor of the kaleidoscope is a kind of bottom-up vision. This is the city, this is the people, this is the the sort of hybridity that, that you're talking about. But, but maybe the other metaphor would be um, to look at the top-down perspective, the state perspective. And perhaps we could say that instead of a uh, kaleidoscope, uh, what we have there is, I guess, just binoculars, right? <laughs> uh, it's, it's a very kind of flat, unidirectional view of things. So what you discovered and what you... Well, if I can interrupt, the reason that I used kaleidoscope is because it's not limitless. Mm -hmm. And when you twist the kaleidoscope, you also, right, you can also ultimately get this one black line on a white background. If you twist it all the way to one way, like that is the that is the monochromatic, the black and white line of, I guess, um, plane and figure, background and figure. So you can twist it all the way and blot out all the color and all of the other patterns. And then as you start twisting it in the other direction, the colors start entering the field and bursting out into this wide variety of patterns until you reach the end of it and it comes back to the black and white. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain sort of range, exactly. It's not unlimited, which I think captures nicely the urban landscape, right? It, it's a certain kind mm -hmm. of set, finite landscape, and you are discovering all these different patterns in that landscape. Um, but, but again, but again, I mean, what do you think about the other vision being much more sort of 
flat and unidirectional kind of looking through binoculars and seeing one thing at a time. Um, it, it doesn't that match a little bit more the, sort of the, the, these categories that are, you know, coming from the top and are being imposed on people? Well, this is where that the, the BCSO scheme comes in, right? The Bosnia, Croat, Serb, over other Osali scheme comes in. And on one hand, I think it's simplistic to say that it's only top-down, that it was imposed only from top-down, because um, the scheme of, but who are you really and what are you really, is, is also part of a longer durée in, in the area of, like, we all know, we all know that this guy's a Serb and that guy's a Croat and that guy's a Muslim, because Bosniak didn't re-enter the vocabulary until uh, several decades ago, and Sephardic Jew. I mean, the, these four kind of stock figures, images, um, are part and parcel of the Sarajevo scene for at least 400, if not 500 years. So these are categories that are, are stark and limited, that have been part of the Sarajevo scene for 400 years. And then, through the history of this region, through the two Yugoslavias, through World War II and the, the Nazi and fascist regimes um, that came into Sarajevo, they were sharpened. They were racialized. Like, at one point, they were mainly religious categories, right, Catholic, Orthodox, Muslim, and Jew, and then they were racialized. So when we look at the, the, the hewing of this population with lots of intermarriage, lots of cultural appropriations or borrowings or mixings and blendings, and then this is called Serbian and this is called Croatian in both language and, and household artifacts and architecture and whatever. What I'm saying is that the categories were not imposed from above down. Mm -hmm. Right. But so the so meanings and, and, and the administration of those categories were. Right. So so the local population um, also buys into these categories, at least at least a segment of the of the local population. But still, I, I feel that you have unveiled in the book uh, the places of, of tension, the, the places where uh, people would like to develop uh, uh, different kinds of Id identities mm -hmm. and how much pressure they face, uh, how much they're actually forced to pick one of these official categories. As I was rereading the book, um, and specifically the, the chapter where you uh, talk about this, uh, what came to mind is this uh, short little episode from another book that, that, that I want to just describe here very <laughs> briefly, which, which is quite interesting. So, so this, is a, this is a different book that I read um, that has nothing to do with, with the ex-Yugoslav space. It's called um, Turtle Feet, Turtle Feet. Um, written by Nikolai Grozny, um, and he was a music uh, student mm -hmm. in um, Boston and then moved to India uh, to mm -hmm. study to, to become a Buddhist monk. And while in India, he actually uh, uh, met someone from Bosnia who was mm -hmm. also there, um, who had been a refugee before that. And this individual that he meets is specifically from Sarajevo. So uh, he tells him a little story about um, precisely this point. So um, this 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 Bosnian man, um, well, actually, I'm calling him Bosnian, but but you'll see you'll see in a moment. It's a little more mm -hmm. complicated. Um, he ended up, anyways. He was born in Bosnia. He fled uh, and ended up in Germany somehow. Mm -hmm. And then in Germany, um, you know, he had to apply officially for asylum. So he was brought into this office and you have you have these officials there who are asking him, you know, for his paperwork and uh, uh, the rest of it. Um, and then they ask him to define himself. Mm. What is your nationality? And he really wanted to define himself as a Yugoslav. And the mm -hmm. reason for that, I think at least partially maybe the reason for that would be that he was born in Bosnia, but his father was Serbian. 
and his mother was Croatian, so he identified as Yugoslavian. Mm-hmm. But um, they 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 didn't let let him do that because they they said, well, uh, Yugoslavia doesn't exist anymore, so you can't pick that. The countries that exist are Serbia, Bosnia, Croatia, so you have to pick one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he absolutely refused to do it. Um, and they kept on pressuring him, and he refused. And he said, fine, l- this is what you're going to do. Where it says nationality, you're going to put down Opal Cadet. <laughs> Opal Cadet is uh, it's a German car. Uh, it's, it's simply a, a car like a Nissan or a you know, Honda. And on the ID, it actually, they, they put it down officially as, you know, his nationality being Opel Cadet. <laughs> Fabulous. You know, there are, in the realm of literature, um, there, and I, I wish we had forever to talk, but there are so many in- fabulous books that look at this. But in the 1991 even census, um, the last Yugoslav census, there were people who said, you know, put me down as alien, put me down as refrigerator, because they did not want to play into the rising nationalism. I don't know if they were all from Bosnia, some from Croatia, some, some from uh, Slovenia, some from, you know, who knows where. But yeah, one of the things, and thank you for, for, for providing that humorous segue, because one of the things that I, I wanted to look at is, okay, the Dayton Accords, some people that I've talked to said to me, this was the best we could do. We have to hew three incommensurable, rights-vested, ethnic groups out of the only ex-Yugoslav republic that never had a majority nation, and that even is not named for a nation. It's named for two regions, two geographical regions. Prior to the war, and as you know, in, in, in my book, I spent some time dwelling on this idea of BCS, Bos- Bosniak, Croat, a Serb, and parenthetically others, who are vested as nations uh, in the Dayton Accords in the new Bosnia-Herzegovina, which is also subdivided into two entities and a teeny-weeny other entity called Birchko because they couldn't decide or no one would agree to having that teeny-weeny little percentage of the land go to one or the other. So... The only ethnicities or nationalities, pripadnost, I guess, um, belongings that were recognized under the Dayton Accords were Bosniak, which previously had been called Muslims, the Muslim nation that also had to fight to become recognized first um, at the local level in the late 1960s and then in the 81 and 91 censuses. Uh, maybe 71 also, I don't remember. Uh, and, and, and then, so these three national groups got to be exclusively vested as the national groups of uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, in parentheses, plus others. And what I showed is that the others category kept receding because it doesn't make sense to declare yourself a Jew or a Montenegrin or a Slovenian because you're kind of grouped together under Ostali and not given full rights in the governance um, and the resources of your country. Mm. So I think that this is what you were talking about in terms of binoculars, right? And when the world tells you that these three groups, that it's only worthwhile to be a member of these three groups, you can tilt against windmills like Don Quixote, or you can adopt that rhetoric. And what my book shows is how people go back and forth. They're consistent and inconsistent. They rebel against it because it it, it grates against, you know, some people said to me, it grates against who I are. My mother is a Croat. My father is a Serb. I'm not going to declare myself only a Serb and write my, my other parent out of my identity. Or some people say to me, you know what, I'm closer to my father's side of the family. I'm going to declare myself as a Bosniak. And in private, I know that it's both. Or, um, you know, others leave the country. 
they just say, I can't, I can't be true to my own belongings or my own feelings of Yugoslavism or Bosnianism because my country is not recognizing that. So uh, uh, the book and the overarching argument is really that, you know, without a kind of flexible way to define self and other, there are inherently going to be these tensions. Right. But you're absolutely yeah. right in terms of um, cementing the reality of these three groups as the constituent um, members of this country, not providing any safety valve, not providing any escape. And I guess at the end of the book, what I look at is, you know, what what are the possible afterologies if, and, you know, and I checked like yesterday or the day before in anticipation of this interview, is the EU high representative still in charge of Bosnia and Herzegovina? And the answer is yes. And when I was finishing my book toward the end of, you know, 2009, <laughs> there were promises that, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to just wrap things up here in a while. And uh, here we are in 2020. In the book, you, you also have um, two really interesting examples. One is, I forget the details, but I remember the, the, the general story. Um, it's, um, I think that there may be brothers who studied in, yes. in the U.S. And yes. then uh, when they came back home, because they also come from a, a mixed background, they defined themselves as white right. uh, in Bosnia. Exactly. Um, and another example that comes to mind uh, for this other category, as it's, as it's called in Bosnia, is um, the example of someone, uh, I believe he moved to Italy, I think, um, and the way he explained it was that uh, he preferred to be a, a foreigner in a, in a foreign country than to be one of these, quote-unquote, others in his own country. So on that, just a few maybe more moments on that um, that other category, which is, I guess, an official category. You also spend uh, spent quite a bit of time with the Jewish community in Bosnia, and I think at one point in the book, uh, one point in the book, you you mentioned that. Uh, initially, you were trying. You were not planning to necessarily, um, uh, uh, you know, do ethnography uh, during these visits, but but it some, somehow ended up being a part of the book as well. Uh, so, could you maybe say a few more words about your experience um, or, or their experience in Bosnia? Yeah, it, there's. It's it's kind of a love story until World War II. Um, Jews entered Bosnia after the Spanish expulsion in about 1530s, and um, the Ottoman governors let them come in. Um, as you know, the people of the book always have a welcome, but you have to pay taxes and you have to pay obeisance to the the. The, the Muslim Turkish um, governors and authorities. And the Jews, they did okay. And they were not, you know, extremely wealthy. But uh, Sarajevo became known as the city of four faiths. And um, the, the Jewish population, thus, of, of Sarajevo was until the middle of the 19th century predominantly uh, Sephardic or um, um, a Spanish right? Descendants of people who were expelled during the Inquisition or the Great Expulsion. Um, and there were synagogues throughout uh, Sarajevo. And on the eve of World War II, there were somewhere between 10 and 12,000 uh, Jewish people, various clubs and literary societies, rabbis, doctors, lawyers, professionals, and workers, bakers, tailors, and so forth. Sarajevo, and there's a wonderful book by Emily Grebel, who is a historian, uh, about um, called Sarajevo in Hitler's Europe, Christians, Muslims, and Jews in um, Hitler's Europe in Sarajevo. And uh, the Jews were decimated. The Jews were killed and um, shipped to Auschwitz, but there, was a there, there are counter-narratives. And this is where, you know, this is the theme of my whole book about, you know, the hegemony, the narrative, and then the counter-narrative that interlace and play with each other. So the big counter-narrative is not only that everybody uh, who survived the war has a story about how they were saved by a Muslim or a Christian family, and we have uh, in Israel, in um, Yad Vashem, 
you know, this row of uh, people who were designated as righteous uh, Gentiles, this one um, uh, Bosnian Muslim woman who came, I think she was age 80 when she came with all of her grandchildren to get her award, and she basically said, of course I saved them. They were my neighbors. They were my friends. That's what a person does. And the Christians who said, of course I saved them. It's the Christian thing to do. So after the war, something like, you know, maybe a thousand people, some of whom were partisans, and some of them were saved by their um, neighbors, and some of whom returned from the camps, came back and took part in uh, the new Yugoslavia, uh, as did the Sarajevo Haggadah. And this is a great story that has also been told by um, a novelist named, I think, Gwendolyn Brooks, right, the Sarajevo Haggadah yes. of this um, Passover prayer book that traveled uh, eastward with people seemingly who had been expelled from Spain through Italy into uh, Sarajevo. And then along the way, I got a few stories from informants, hosts, uh, friends who were both Jewish and not Jewish telling me the story to illustrate the Bosnian way of inter-ethnic cooperation of having the Sarajevo Haggadah uh, saved by the Croat director of the National Museum, the Simajske Muse. Um, he told the Nazi who came in asking for it that, oh, I'm so, so sorry. We already gave it away to somebody else who had come in here previously. And so, of course, the Nazi um, official didn't want to seem foolish and say, well, who was that? And of course, the Croat director of the museum took a great chance because, of course, he didn't give, a, give it away and he didn't have somebody's name to give. But that worked out. And then it was hidden under the floor of a mosque during, all, during the entire war. And then it was brought back out again and placed in the National Museum of, of Bosnia-Herzegovina. So these are stories that are kind of metaphoric and metonymic at the same time of the place of the Jewish population in Sarajevo. And during the war, the Jewish um, community center, which is also the one remaining active synagogue, served as a soup kitchen and a radio communication station because the electric lines were all bombed out. The electric and post and telegraph lines were all bombed out uh, pretty early in 1992. Um, so, you know, Jews like to tell the story of 500 years of peace and cooperation with their Christian and Muslim neighbors. In chapter six, that's where you, um, uh -huh. which is titled uh, Sarajevo's Jews, One Community Among the Others. Uh -huh. um, at, the, at the end of the chapter, the, there's a picture of the, the Sarajevo Haggadah. Uh -huh. uh, and um, you, I wanted to ask you about the very last story in that chapter. You end with this, uh, you, you talk about how you came across an older man, um, uh -huh. I guess, close to the synagogue. Uh, you quote him here. He says, Bosnia is my homeland. Uh -huh. Sarajevo is my homeland. The uh -huh. Bosnian people are my people. Um, so I, I just wanted to ask you sort of the decision to end uh, with this story. Did you feel that, that this perspective represented sort of something that you observed? What I wanted to say is that for a lot of the Jewish people of Sarajevo, they love their city and they love their country with the same love and fervor as the BCS guys, as the Bosniaks, the Croats, and the Serbs, who are named as being the constituent nations. I also said it a little bit nostalgically and maybe also characteristically of this generation because he he has two kids, both of whom have emigrated, both of whom have left the country, right? But he has resolutely stayed because this is his home, this is his homeland, this is his country. So I said it with both of those um, uh, ideas in mind. But the third reason I can now say is um, a court case took place at the end of 2009 um, as my book was being published. The court case went to the European Court of Human Rights all the way up in the, in the EU. And the court case was made by um, Jakob Finzi and um, I always forget his name, Roma Finzi and Sedic. 
Finzi and Sedich, right? And here is the the idea that I want to talk to you about this Ostali residual category, inclusive of, but inclusive of, but not erasing smaller smaller nations, but not giving them full rights. So Finzi and Sedich took to this court case up to the highest court in the European Union. Why? Because only Bosniaks, Croats, and Serbs could run for some higher office, and including the highest office of president. The president was a three-person entity, which is now a revolving entity. One person always has to be a Bosniak, one person always has to be a Croat, one person always has to be a Serb. And their point was that as Ostali, as others, they're precluded. They don't have full citizenship rights in their country, because even if they are qualified to be um, uh, in the political system and to run for the highest office, they're uh, automatically um, uh, excluded, according to the Constitution. Uh, the court found in their favor um, the court said that, yes, the country needs to start investigating rewriting the Constitution in order to include others in this possibility. And guess what hasn't been done? Mm -hmm. I, I tell this story because it's not just, at least in the Jewish case, which I know the best about, it's, it's not just passively waiting for things to get better. Like some people are. Right and younger generations. I also have that that story about uh, this mother and her her daughter, a mixed uh, couple, and the mother is mourning. Oh my gosh, I loved Yugoslavia, and the daughter is saying to her, I can't stand it anymore. You and your generation are always mourning. I loved Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia doesn't exist anymore, and this country that was a descendant of Yugoslavia is a mess. My homeland, this the the young person said, is Australia, where we emigrated to, and I really don't feel any loyalties or ties to Yugoslavia or to um, Bosnia, the Bosnia Herzegovina. So I, here, what I have in that story um, that I ended it is yes, there are Jews who are very much tied to Bosnia Herzegovina, including kids, young people who return from abroad hopefully to lead the community, to just have a normal life, to be part of the diplomatic corps of Bosnia-Herzegovina, as is Finci, to be a lawyer, to be um, a, a university professor. There are those, but there are also those who have gone to live abroad or in Israel or in Spain or in the United States or in Canada. And then there are those, as I said, I think in the beginning of the book, like me, whose peregrinations have not come to an end. And they're moving, still moving around, looking for the best place to be. But I wanted to end it with that story to show that this loyalty and this love and this rootedness remain a, a real possibility and a real way of being in the world, despite um, uh, being shoved into that Ostali category. In the last two lines, um of that paragraph, you, you do mention that uh, the man's uh, children were in Austria, but then again, uh, he he's, he ends by saying that this is my land, my people. So so um, that kind of nicely encapsulates everything you you, you just described. Um, we're going to soon run out of time. I hope you have two more minutes. I did want to ask you about one more thing that I found fascinating that's actually in the beginning of the book. Uh -huh. um, you have a whole chapter here about this 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 concept this this practice of uh, what, what's called in Bosnian, Serbian, Croatian, šetanje, which oh, yeah. in English would be translated as walking, but, but saying strolling, yeah, strolling maybe captures it a little bit more. I, I think in Italian there there's a term that captures this that's much closer. This idea of the passeggiata. Uh, mm -hmm. Sort of this this leisurely stroll, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, this was really interesting because I, I felt that when you were describing this practice, um, you were sort of describing the revival of a kind of lived space, right? Mm -hmm. These these uh, walks, these strolls could not happen during the war for for obvious reasons. So once the war ended. Um, 
you know, people could go back to this to this practice. But again, um, you know, I've I've seen this in in many cities across Europe, really around the Mediterranean, and actually even smaller cities in Bosnia, like really small <laughs> cities. I've seen where you have a, a little tiny downtown core. What people will do at night is just walk in circle basically yeah so so if you're walking um you know uh, uh, clockwise or counterclockwise you'll run into the same people you know every like 20 minutes or so um right. so, so this is a real this is a real practice uh, so I, I just wanted to ask you about how that connects to this again that sort of bottom up perspective this idea of of um hybridity and this idea of rebuilding a, a kind of life, a kind of uh, a culture, if you will, uh, in Sarajevo? Well, first of all, thanks for reading it that way. I, I, that's exactly that's exactly as I felt it. I wanted people who were reading this book to feel it sensually and not just ideationally. I wanted them to feel that leisurely movement of planting footsteps on your city and identifying with it. And maybe that kind of links back with ending the part about, um, you know, the Jews of Sarajevo with this idea of Sarajevo is my city. Because in in this Shaitanya, as I, as I experienced it, did it, walked with people, watched people, it's purposive. But it's purposive even as it's, as it kind of drifts into unconsciousness. Of course you walk the city. That's what you do. But people come in from outside, from the suburbs, just to walk the city and to assert their belonging through their feet on the pavement. And I don't want to overuse the term kaleidoscopically, but to inhale, you know, to breathe in, to inhale uh, the city streets and then the city vision. And then as you go from place to place, each building remains, just like each ethnic group perhaps, remains discreet. But then as you're walking, it also blends into the one before it and after it. The same thing with the people. If you look at it from above, you can see individuals, but they kind of more look like a serpentine ribbon. And I, I, I wanted to kind of capture those ideas that it's not one or the other, but it's both. Mm. Thank you for observing that. I, I wanted to lay out the Shetanya as part and parcel of this idea that I was coming up with and trying to write my way into. This is exactly the, the issues that I was dealing with through the writing process. How do I get it out there? How do I crash the binaries? Because, yeah, it's easy to talk about this was uh, a government-down decision to hew the population, both through the, the, the development of these kind of, not kind of, these violent elites that came out of mainly um, um, some Serb and some Croat groups, and then were also exacerbated into being among the, the Bosniak or the Muslim group as well. But that also means that there were Serbs who stayed in Sarajevo, who worked with the militia, who went to the synagogue and manned um, the, the radio station. And there were Croats who helped their neighbors and went to the other side, especially in Mostar, as well as in, in Sarajevo. And there were bad Bosniaks as well as lots of really good ones who were, you know, doing whatever they could to help themselves and help their neighbors to make it through this war. So I, I, I wanted I wanted to leave it open and messy because that is what was going on and, and continues to go on today. Could we end by I just wanted to ask you at the end about your uh, current uh, or future projects, so sort of what are you working on now? I've been working for over 25 years on and off with a black Hebrew group called the African Hebrew Israelite Community. And between stints among Russians and stints among Bosnians, I've been working with African-American black Hebrews who emigrated, or as they would say, made, made Aliyah, ascended to Israel, because they are sure 
that they are the direct descendants of um, the children of Israel and that the vicissitudes of history have knocked this knowledge out of them. Um, according to prophecies from Deuteronomy, they found their way back through their spirits and through their souls, and they created um, a community in Israel, which has been in that country now for some 50 years, and their vicissitudes are very, very, very interesting to watch because their major mantra is, we have the power to define who we are as a people. Most recently, my colleague Nir Avieli and I have been doing work on uh, food for the body and soul. They're a vegan group, and we look at how veganism both uh, mirrors and uh, inspires some of their practices, particularly in regard to um, uh, peacefulness and gender roles. So that's my latest project. I've said goodbye to Eastern Europe. I'm trying to find my way perhaps back to the U.S. for my next life stage. And it has been just a pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you and really gratifying to talk with you about some pieces in the book that I found um, both beautiful and inspiring and difficult to write and that you picked up on as touching uh, your intellect, imagination, and soul. So thanks. Well, I also want to thank you for taking the time uh, to talk to us about your work. I really appreciate it.